Today on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode driven by your questions that come in via Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. My name is Marshall Pruitt. I cover IndyCar for a living. I have for a little while now. Before that, I worked for teams doing things mechanically and engineering and even managementally in IndyCar, in junior open-wheel racing, and all kinds of stuff. So, hey, what do you know? I do a weekly show where I talk about this stuff, and you ask questions, and I try to answer them uh, to the best of my ability, which isn't always great. I refer to this show specifically as my unpolished turd. I leave in the mistakes. I make plenty. It's just, it's who I am. So, you know what? You get the real experience, not some hyper, overly produced, whatever, whatever version of a show. It's also very conversational. If you just want short, quippy answers, there are other shows out there, and I hope you love them. This is one where whatever it is, we're going to talk about it. Could take 30 seconds, could take 30 minutes. Who knows? I enjoy the format based on the feedback that I get. Most of you do as well. We put a little timestamp in here. So if you want to get straight to the Q&A, that is super, super possible. Tend to open the show. A little bit of a preamble. Whatever is happening on the home front here with my wife and I, things that maybe don't exactly fit into your Q&A. So going to do two things. Going to say thank you, as always, to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com. Those are just fine people there north of the border. And then finally, Bell Racing Helmets USA. Then for what we're going to talk about before we get started with the Q&A, it's not a ton. Just going to mention that I've seen here, this is Monday, starting to record it. It's now 6.09 p.m. in California, that there's some information going around that the start to practice at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway has been pushed back a day from next Tuesday, which if I was smart, I would have the calendar up so I could give you the exact date. Uh, next Tuesday, the 11th, uh, being pushed back formally, to Wednesday the 12th, I can tell you that as of tonight, there is absolutely nothing official about that whatsoever. That may become the case. So I would say prepare yourself for the possibility of Indy 500 practice being pushed back a day, the start of it from Tuesday to Wednesday. Where does this come from? Why am I saying don't? change anything officially on your end if you're booking or flying or whatever else so this possibility was mentioned last friday in a call from indycar to its teams getting ready for this upcoming weekend's mid ohio doubleheader was mentioned to the teams that coming out of that doubleheader hey we realize that there just might not be enough time for everyone to get cars turned around and prepped and people in place, in garages, just might not be able to get everything done as quickly as we want, knowing we would be finishing the doubleheader on Sunday the 9th. Then we're going to be going green very shortly thereafter on Tuesday the 11th. So we're considering pushing the start back to the 12th. As I am told, that call and that possibility was mentioned before mid-Ohio received the news from state and local officials that, well, because of the COVID outbreaks or everything we know about coronavirus changing all of our lives in ways that we just can no longer stand, you can put on the race, but you can't have any fans. So there's a little nuancey thing here of timing 
as I'm told, the hey, we might push it back to Wednesday information was given before Mid-Ohio received the information about no fans and then made the decision to cancel, well, cancel the race on its date that was already in place and push it back to something later. Now, with Mid-Ohio no longer there, does IndyCar hold on to its decision to push back to Wednesday the 12th instead of Tuesday the 11th? That's what we're waiting to find out. There's no longer a logjam of prep and 48 hours or less turnaround between coming off track at Mid-Ohio and getting to Indy and going around at high rates of speed. So, yes, no doubt this possibility was mentioned, but the context of when it was mentioned and now with the thing that's no longer in the way, in terms of Mid-Ohio being there and there being a short turnaround time, we'll have to see if they do indeed still say Wednesday only or Wednesday at the start or if they're going to stick to Tuesday. So a lot of the questions you all sent in were schedule-related, and as a result, I don't want to get too crazy into things right now in the upfront part. So I think what we will do is roll them into your Q&A, and there are some little things I'll mention here. Once I get into it, might not be totally related to your questions, but I spent a lot of time this morning in particular speaking with a lot of people and getting some thoughts from them about where things are at with holding this Indianapolis 500 in August. So let me hit the marker. We're going to get a little bit of, uh, hey, little music bed here. And yes, that's right. Less than six minutes in, we're rolling in to Q&A. We're going to start first with our dear pal, Indiana's Jeremiah Morell, the Morell family. He and his wife, Sarah, they're just mighty fine folks. So, they open with, my frustration level is pegged right now with Mid-Ohio getting rescheduled a second time. Says, I bought tickets this year because the Olympics moved the race into a weekend. I don't have a standing conflict. I rescheduled my vacation when uh, when it moved to accommodate the Indy 500, uh, shifting over to August. Now, three business days before I am set to attend the race, it's pulled. And a vague eight-week window is published for holding the event again. Oh, and we just dropped a couple hundred bucks last week on a Mid-Ohio golf cart to rent because the trams were not scheduled to run. Jeremiah goes on to say, I don't want my money back. I just want to go to a race. It says, I know none of this is anyone's fault, but damn it. How do we find out on a Saturday that an event in three business days is not happening? Yeah, well, I know I mentioned a little bit of that in the uh, the upfront here, Jeremiah. This was a case of timing being the thing that derailed Green Savory Race Promotions' efforts to hold this race as planned. And to your greater point, it is no one's fault. I have great sympathy for you and many race fans, truly, who have bought tickets, uh, scheduled this and that and the other, done it, I don't know, in the second schedule printing, third schedule printing. We're up to six now. (laughs) We're up to six. And all in good faith, not in silliness. We all have expected things to keep shuffling a little bit, but there's also just the natural human thing, right? Of like, come on, 
something has to stick, right? And so I wanted Jeremiah's question to uh, run up front here. Thanks again to Tim Falkowitz for putting the the emails and submissions together for me just because I think it's a perfect thing. There's a lot of frustration from folks. It's not a thing where you can point at any one person and blame. No, we're not getting into political stuff and presidents and other countries. And No, just saying we're dealing with what it is. But, man, it does get tiresome dealing with it, doesn't it? But that's the, boy, if there's a, a gift at all to come out of 2020, hopefully it's it's greater patience and fortitude for those who need any little extra bits. I'll share this, too, uh, and I know that we got a question here from Ed Joris about uh, the schedule and also our pal Peter Nutt from Holland I'll get to in just a sec. Um, here's another thing I've been trying to track down. I think everything's going to be okay. I just know that there's high anxiety among a number of teams as for where things are at today. Uh, heck, even waking up this morning was bombarded with a number of outreaches from folks, very concerned, uh, folks within the paddock, right? And this isn't didn't just happen this morning, Monday the 3rd. It's been bubbling up for a little bit towards the end of last week is really where I started to hear the first uh, the first mentions of, hey, Indianapolis is right around the corner. We haven't seen the things we normally see when we're getting ready for the Indy 500 on the kind of team side, not necessarily the super public side. Some things, though. So what we've had is a number of teams, not saying all by any means, but a number of teams in that headspace of, uh, are you sure we're going to go do this here on the 11th or 12th? Because uh, we're not seeing some of the indicators that would tell us that's what's going to happen. One of them happens to be the schedule, the official schedule, team schedule. So not the one if you go to IndianapolisMotorSpeedway.com and go to that one where they have a day-by-day. That we all know. Practice is meant to start at, what, 11.30 every day, basically, and end at 5.30 or so for the normal days and whatnot. So we know that stuff. I'm talking about the master schedule that gets distributed by the series to all the teams. It's this mastery of uh, Microsoft Excel and everything's quadruple color-coded, and you name it, but it's the master schedule for everything. Not just the when you're on track, but the meetings with drivers' meetings, team managers' meetings, autograph, well, there are no autograph sessions, but all the everything. Uh, This is the master schedule that every team works from. As of me starting to record this tonight, which if we stick to the... Tuesday, August 11th, start date. Eight days before cars are supposed to be on track at the Indianapolis 500, the series has yet to distribute the master schedule. Uh, Yeah, I know it's a COVID year, and we know that there's a lot of things that aren't normal. This is not one of those things you'd expect to fall into the uh subject to coronavirus problems and therefore it hasn't happened yet <clears throat> another thing too just 
So the operations manual, that is something that's been distributed to each team starting at Texas. At this event, we're allowing this many people. You can have this. You can't have that. You got to do this. You can park here. You can't park there. You got a distance in this way, bathroom, all the ways to conduct an event in the middle of a pandemic. The IndyCar has distributed specific operations manuals to each team on how each event, again, overstating the obvious, but every track's different, things are done differently, ingress, egress, just everything about it needs a tailored operations uh, manual so that teams can study it, advise their crew, and adhere to those policies as not to run afoul of whether it's IndyCar regulations, state, local, track, otherwise, that has yet to be distributed eight days before the event. I'll just add one more thing, which is I know a little bit about, I know the re- some of the reasons why. So we haven't seen an entry list yet, right? <laughs> and I'm not laughing because it's funny, but it's like, oh, uh, yeah. So I know that, A week ago on Monday on racer.com, I published my first anticipated Indy 500 entry list that had 31, call it confirmed, driver and car combos. I did a little bit of checking as well. That number jives with what the series has and is working with. So if we're talking about at least trying to put forth a entry list that has the full field of 33 well it's not quite there am i surprised we haven't seen an entry list yeah but i could also understand if the series was trying to get things wrapped up a bit to make sure that those other two slots are filled in so that when they send it out they can say we do indeed have a full grid of 33 our traditional 33 so That, we might say, is the reason why that's not out yet. I have also confirmed today that there are active talks to make sure there are at least two more cars in the field to fulfill that traditional field of 33. So beyond just hoping two would pop up, I've confirmed that there's active efforts to make sure that there are those two extra cars. Uh, This is something that IndyCar has done for a number of years, not last year because there was no need. There was, what, 36, 37, whatever crazy number compared to what we'd had before. But for many years, the series has needed to provide a little bit of help, whether it's financial, whether it's business relationships. Hey, we've had an outreach from a company and. You know, they, they're wanting to do a little something and uh, maybe you two could talk and figure something out or whatever it might be. Uh, the series has been an active participant in making sure that it has at least 33 cars. I know for a fact that is still going on uh, to try and make sure those other two entries are there. So no master schedule for teams, no master operations list, no entry list eight days before things are supposed to kick off. Maybe you can understand why some teams are a little bit concerned, if not really concerned about whether 
the 500 is going to be held in August. I'm not saying it won't. I am saying that there are some things adding up to some folks who are a little bit nervous. One good thing to counter this, just trying to share everything with you here, is IndyCar has allowed teams, this was all based on Mid-Ohio being this crazy thing in the way of, of the Indy 500. IndyCar gave permissions for teams to come in and start setting up their garages, I think, today. So they gave permission, come on in, set it up, whether it's, you know, your floors or your benches or whatever. If you want to come in, I think it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They're all given permission to come in and just fully set up their garages at the Speedway. And I know that that is something that some teams have taken advantage of. So... I don't believe IMS would allow people to come in and set everything up if they knew the date was changing. I figure as well, if the series is actively working to tick off the, or check off, not tick off, piss off, to uh, check off the last two entries that it needs to complete the field of 33. So I put some of these things together and go, yeah, things are running pretty darn late. But there are some other indicators that lead me to believe everything's going to go forward as intended next week. Last thing to mention on this exact subject is make all the plans you want. And as we found at Mid-Ohio, well, the state could say, yeah, you're not really going to do it the way you're planning. So IndyCar obviously cannot control Indiana or the city of Indianapolis, or Speedway, or any of its little local municipalities, the Speedway will indeed be subject to whatever the state and local authorities say. So, closing item here on this, and thanks for letting me co-opt your question, Jeremiah. Uh, It sounds like everything is moving forward, there are some conflicting items that could make you lean on the no, it isn't Pruitt or the yes, it is Pruitt side. Ultimately, the smartest thing IndyCar could do is act like everything's going forward and have its teams do the same. And if by chance a governor, a mayor, or whomever jerks their chain and says, hit the stop button, um, then they would have to deal with it. But it's a lot of anxiety right now. And uh, each passing day without schedules, operations, manuals, entry lists, and so on, uh, yeah, when we all wake up Tuesday morning, it'll be one week until cars are on track. Uh, just looking forward to some question marks being removed asap ed joris isn't it time for indycar to pull the plug in the idea of races with fans he says outside of road america he says the uh the positive testing rate is high and rising at all the upcoming venues on the calendar uh indianapolis gateway st petersburg mid ohio uh and on the list of easily possible tracks texas coda and barber the covid rates are off the charts he says isn't a plan b called for like maybe a series of races in a bubble in Indy, augmented by a trip to Road America in September, 
isn't it time for IndyCar to realize that hope is not a strategy? Well, I hear you, Ed. I, I'll throw just a couple of quick things at you. And I know that these things are not unknown to some of you. Someone else asked a question here, and I, I don't see it, so I apologize. But uh, I'll have to just paraphrase. And it goes in line with Ed's question, just saying, why is IndyCar, why is racing in general trying to force it? Why, why is IndyCar trying to do all these races, going from place to place, worried about fans and COVID rates going up and just, right? So similar thing. Why? Why is IndyCar pushing well, it's not just IndyCar, obviously. IMSA's out there, NASCAR's out there, F1's out there. The overall topic was why is racing, why are racing series pushing so hard when so many other forms of sport aren't, or they're doing things in a really small bubble-type manner like Ed mentions? It's really simple. IndyCar is the one major sport driven up almost 100% from the team side meaning we have a paying driver we are effectively we're like a catering company (laughs) we've been hired to go here in these dates and to put on an event for this person possibly this person and their family and they also might get hospitality and they might get whatever else but ultimately we're not too different from a catering company Uh, We are being hired to go places and put something on for folks. It could be whether it's an individual or it could be, in the case of sponsors, you could say a corporate sponsor, corporate deal, corporate catering gig. If you aren't going to places putting on things for the individuals hiring you or the corporations hiring you, you are out of business and That's a lot different than, say, the NBA, which has a bazillion-dollar television contract, which helps offset the losses from not having fans. Uh, You could also say that in the case of the owners of those 30, what, two teams, uh, whatever the number is, they're all bazillionaires many times over. I know that some race team owners in IndyCar are certainly very wealthy, but more than half aren't and are, you know, very much dependent upon being on track in order to stay alive. So that's the thing here, Ed, where things get a little bit tricky. Uh, There was an absolute push by teams to say, we got to get back to racing. We're not going to survive if we don't. Money's not going to come in. We're going to fold a lot of people out of work and your racing series crumbles. Would say that we need to keep in mind that, yes, at a place like Road America, where, again, we hope lots of folks haven't come home positive uh, with the good old Corolla virus. The idea of a indie bubble <laughs> based on how much, oh my God, I don't know if I can handle a third or fourth or fifth Harvest Grand Prix at IMS or whatever. Nothing against IMS, but I, I, I think there might be limited enthusiasm for just wearing a groove 
into the Indy road course to make up race after race after race. So I hear you. Uh, would I rather see IndyCar do a double header at road America, try some, some stuff that's maybe different or fun. I mean, I've somewhat com- comedically mentioned a reverse course race. I'd love to see it. If all the barriers are adequately taken care of. And, you know, in some places, uh, where cars go slow, uh, right now or, or enter the area slow, uh, the normal route on the uh, clockwise version. Well, coming into some of those same places counterclockwise, they would be going a zillion miles an hour. So uh, shuffling things up a bit, even at the IMS road course. I don't know. I hear you, Ed, the idea of let's localize, keep everyone safe, get in a whole bunch of races and everything's good since from state to state and whatnot, um, the virus rates are, you know, all over the map. I hear you. Um, I just don't know how much IndyCar can do beyond what it's come up with right now. Uh, I don't want to do the gateway road roval. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I have a great answer for you, but I do know that I do know that we probably need to have IndyCar thinking about some sort of plan B because if St. Petersburg doesn't happen and who knows if Mid-Ohio will happen based on what the state allows, all of a sudden we're staring at an 11 race championship instead of 14. Um, And that's assuming no other events come off the calendar. I don't know, man. I I hear you. I don't know if forcing it is the way I would put it. Uh, not that you did, but there's a real need to be on track to earn money for these teams. The flip side, of course, you can say, well, if you look at things through a humanitarian lens, should we be putting people's lives at risk for entertainment? Of course not. I wish I had an answer. I'm glad I don't have to make the decision, Ed. Uh, Peter Nutt, how viable is the idea of having any fans at races for the rest of the season? And how would it work insurance-wise? Could venues or series get sued if it goes wrong? Or could testing be required, but who pays for that? Yeah, I mean, every time my wife and I go into her physical therapy uh, each week, you know, we are, well, granted, every time we go into chemo for chemo each week, whether it's to get the blood work done uh, on the Mondays, return on Tuesdays for the chemo also with our physical therapy a couple times a week and sometimes chemotherapy twice a week. We are so accustomed to not being able to enter any building (laughs) without having our temperatures checked, without running through a series of questions, without uh, being asked to replace the masks we're wearing with masks that they hand out out of fear that the ones we have are infected somehow and we say no, um, or, you know, we wear gloves. Some places we're asked not to wear gloves. Um, we're so accustomed, Peter, to the process of not being able to do anything without stopping and spending two to five minutes going through a process. I don't know if it's feasible, uh, let me rephrase that. It is feasible if IndyCar wanted to do this. I don't know if the aver- if some fans 
would actually be willing to go through that process. I think that might be the thing. So talking about um, having fans, trying to get them in, uh, could testing be required? Yeah, I'm sure like many of you, I am just saddened for humanity every day when I read the story about greeter at Walmart slapped, punched, kicked, threatened, whatever, for asking a person to wear a mask to comply with store policy or this person. Again, it's just, it's like all of a sudden folks who work at the places we go to have become bouncer, have had to become, you know, uh, freaking bodyguards, soldiers, and you name it, just because some of us refuse to do the thing we're asked to do. I'm not saying in your personal life. I'm just saying in your public life, if going into a building that someone owns involves them saying, for you to do it, you have to do this thing, well, you know, there are some folks who decide to fight to the bitter end to not do that thing, to get inside someone's business. Knowing, Peter, that uh, we see so many instances on a daily basis of folks just rejecting any and everything related to the virus, uh, testing gloves, masks, anything else, I just don't know if that's a door to crack open for IndyCar. Uh, I do know that on the back of tickets, there's some fresh language saying you absolve us and everyone putting on the event if you happen to catch covid so that's a thing in terms of being sued if things go wrong what i am fearful of and i know others are as well is not getting the black eye right hey indianapolis 500 we've got whatever the number a lot of fans showing up and then you read for the next week or weeks or months about how, boy, this was a huge, soupy mess of Corolla virus, and all of a sudden a ton of people got sick as a result of gathering for this big race. Um, and that could be the Indy 500, it could be a NASCAR or something, it could be whatever. Um, that's the fear. So I just don't really have the answer beyond what we spoke with with Ed, Peter. Uh, yeah, I love the idea of IndyCar doing the rest of its season with no fans, therefore no risk of anyone, just right, just keep it simple and clean, and there you go. Like the NBA, like this, like, you know, whatever series or form the sport forms of sports that are doing that, we're just in a very different place where, unlike NASCAR, we don't have a TV contract that's paying us gobs of money. Uh, and as Mid-Ohio showed us, faced with the option of running their doubleheader with or without fans, they had to stop because they could not afford to run it without fans. Green Savory Race Promotions already lost two of its four events this year, Toronto and Portland. Obviously, the fourth, St. Petersburg, we hope will happen, and with fans, but you know they cannot afford to do it without people paying to be there. So, I don't know. Again, I don't know what the correct answer is other than uh, for a lot of for the way that our sport is structured, that is based on satisfying paying drivers and paying sponsors, and for the tracks to make a profit to pay the series, the sanction fee they agreed to, 
needing fans to offset those costs, hopefully make a profit. Everything in our sport of IndyCar, I'll just leave it with IndyCar, uh, it's all involves financial transactions. And you know, there's another thing, too, I'll just mention here quickly, and it steps out of IndyCar. And I know I just said I'll keep it IndyCar, but this one popped into my head. So I don't recall if I said this out loud or not. Um, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But So knew that IndyCar was not going to do its West Coast swing for a little while. Mentioned that here in the podcast a couple times a week or two before it was formally announced. No, Again, no big deal, nothing totally shocker there. Um, I continue to hear that IMSA might not be making its way to Laguna. Also something I have mentioned on the other, my sports car podcast, nothing exactly new here. They have a, a very specific thing in sports car racing. Just talking on the value here and why the no fans thing really is a deal breaker. So in IMSA, they have, I forget what the number is. It's like 13, 14, 15 auto manufacturers officially participating in their series they pay money they pay a you know a big fee to be officially recognized as a manufacturer in the series they gain some rights to marketing and promotions and the big thing that many of the manufacturers do in imsa at each every race or select races is they send out their full kind of marketing promotions auto show type group and they put up huge vendor displays. It could actually be kind of a compound, right? Come on inside. We're serving drinks and just TV screens and music and DJs and whatever else, a full experience, and have all their latest cars lined up outside. So this is just standard practice of manufacturer after manufacturer. At Daytona, for example, the Rolex 24, there's a whole just patch of earth (laughs) dedicated and it's mercedes and it's porsche and it's mazda and it's ford and it's lexus and it's on and on and on and on and they spend a buttload of money on these huge displays all the cars personnel that staff it i mean this is a thing a real thing and it's all done to promote their cars obviously but it's all done all this money is spent also ties into the money they spend to compete with their factory racing teams in the series to get the people on the ground the 5 10 20 however many thousands of people hopefully into their display hopefully into one of their cars to give them a brochure give them a business card it's all about going to that vendor row and seeing this beautiful lineup of so many manufacturers trying to tempt you to buy their cars. That's what they're paying for. And so when you take that away, which again, I believe is going to be a thing when we talk about Laguna Seca here for IMSA, maybe not so much of a thing for IndyCar in terms of Chevy and Honda. It's just two brands. But if you take away the ability since the track manager has said they do not expect fans to be at any races for the rest of the year at Laguna Seca, well, all of a sudden, all those manufacturers have no reason to go, no reason to spend that money 
with the series, with the track, with anything else, all of a sudden, if the series says, well, why would we go to a place uh, really far away from where we have most of our races where no manufacturers can do their thing? Well, then maybe we don't need to go there. Um, So, yeah, just that's the thing. Uh, You got to create that value in return. And if it's gone, well, uh, yeah, that's when we have some problems with scheduling. Going to move to Jerry Sudduth. Hey, Jerry says mid Ohio is postponed because the state of Ohio would not allow fans trackside. Is this an indicator of the financial state of the green savory promotions folks? Should we be worried about them as an entity? I don't know their finances, but I do know that. Yeah. If you have four things that make you money for the year and two of them are taken away. Yeah. Most people can't survive very long on 50% income. And if that then gets cut down even further, if another one's lost, I would be concerned for sure. Uh, let's go to Mike Jablo. Do you know if masks will be mandated for spectators during Indy 500 practice and qualifying? I plan to wear mine. I don't know because I haven't seen that operations manual. We do know as I knock the microphone with my small cup of coffee here. Uh, we do know that there is the the plan that they've announced for race day with masks and temperature scans and all that. I would have to assume, Mike, and safely assume that if there's this big plan in place for race day to prevent spreads and transmissions, that they would apply that to any and all time uh, folks come into the facility. So we know that teams are required, driver, ever like, all the people are required there operationally to wear one. So I would have to believe that since fans have been told they will on race day, it would have to extend any time they open up uh, the gates. Again, whether it's the people participating in the on-track stuff or fans watching it. If not, I I, I don't know. I'm gonna I'll eat my knuckles because it'd be the stupidest thing in the history of the world to say. Some of you, but not all of you. Like, we're going to inoculate half of you. That'll be good enough. Um, yeah, so I would assume so. Uh, Jordan Darwin, Marshall, is any 500 in 2020 in danger of not happening? Uh, he says, hashtag me personally. I'm starting to get worried about it not running in 2020, giving the Roger Penske mandate that it must run with fans. This says, a follow-up question. How much better or worse is IMS and IndyCar financially being backed by Roger versus the Holman George family? I had a friend mention earlier today how thankful he was that all of this is happening on Roger's watch. And I I didn't so much take it as a negative or a a, a big slam of the Holman George family, Jordan. Uh, I took it as, maybe I should have, I don't know, but I took it as... uh, if there's a person with the passion and who feels just duty bound, honor bound to make the race happen in the way that he knows it should happen based on his love of it since 1953 or whatever it was the first time Roger was there. This is a guy who just knows how to do things right and doesn't accept excuses and isn't looking for ways to squeeze a profit from something 
Obviously, when it was still part of the Holman George family, and we know that the Indy 500 was a money maker. We know that there was plenty of money within the family, but this was also a bit of a legacy thing and not something where they wanted to potentially burn down uh, all the family's savings and such. So I do think, yes, uh, it's not as if Roger wants to just burn money for fun as well, but this is the right guy for this problem. He, as I've mentioned and you all know, he is just as prone to whatever Indiana, Indianapolis, or the uh, towns of Speedway as well decide in terms of fans, no fans, you name it. Roger cannot sidestep any of that. But I do believe that, yes, uh, this is going to be the guy that makes the right decision. If by chance there's a mandate saying no fans, I, boy, I, I'm not totally sure how that would receive a, well, I know we said we weren't, but we will. So if you look at the stated purse for the race, which was what the biggest ever or something like that. Well, again, just overstating the obvious here, um, that's paid for with profits, Uh, That's paid for with money, income coming in. If there's a decision to hold the race with no fans, what happens to things like that? Uh, Does that get cut in half or a quarter or whatever? I know that for the non-leader circle teams, they've had their start money cut in half already. (laughs) So just coming back to this thing of need fans need that income to make things viable. Roger might be the guy who owns the track and the circuit, but like, uh, Jerry was asking about the green savory folks. Um, they too also need money coming in to make things financially viable. Of course, Roger has the crazy deep pockets, but he also has a board of directors and he has a lot of folks who would say, no, you can't just spend $15 million uh, to cover prize money on your own. Whatever the situation is, Jarden, 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 sure, you're Jarden. You could be Jordan, too. Today, you're Jarden. Whatever the situation is, Jordan, that he is handed, I can just only assume that he's going to do the thing that's right. If that's running in August, October, I don't know. I don't know if we could run a whole lot later than that, but I don't honestly know if it's feasible and allowed. It's going to run and run with fans. If it doesn't, there's a part of me that thinks it would be tough for teams. Some of them who are counting on getting a pretty good payday for prize money, drivers to heck mechanics, uh, engineers who get a percentage of all that. I mean, this is a this is the big financial engine of the entire year. If it can't happen, I think it's going to hurt everybody, obviously, but I'd rather not see some crazy compromise Indy 500 with no fans. It's kind of like trying to watch WWE. That's what I've found. I haven't been able to watch WWE since it's had no fans, since it's either been just in a in their training facility in florida or sometimes they try and or they have of late tried to throw some nxt stars or whatever around the ring all behind plexiglass to pound on it and make noise and give the impression of there being fans but it's just 
the entertainment, the excitement of it is so interrelated, interdependent, if that's even a word, on fan and fan reaction that if you take that away, you take that big emotion machine in the grandstands out. Eh. So we've seen, I know the Texas IndyCar race sure wasn't bad. The IMS Grand Prix, again, not uh, not bad. Just saying, a place like Indianapolis 500 type race that is built on the oohs and ahs and just everything. I don't know how that goes off without it and it being something that we can be proud of, uh, really excited while watching. And also the financial side scares me. Uh, going to go to Brian at 500 Indy 1911 Marshall over or under 34 cars for the Indy 500 this year. I would put your betting focus on 33. I know that with one series official that I spoke with about a week ago, I mentioned, Hey, obviously I wouldn't dare suggest what you should do with your money. But if it is possible, if you are doing whatever you possibly can from the financial side to help uh, some folks. If you could get that number to 34, it'd be awful amazing because you have this whole bump day thing lined up. And if there's no bumping, well, it's just practice. And then all of a sudden, granted, we'd only be talking about one poor soul heading home, uh, but at least there would be some drama to consider and something to worry about to therefore create a dynamic scenario. Uh, of course, you get into the, well, shouldn't everybody be allowed in in this crazy year? Meh, I don't know. It's not a it's not a hand-me-out thing. It's not a participation trophy event, but boy, it sure would not be a very compelling thing on fast Friday and even the race weekend, or I'm sorry, qualifying weekend. If the only thing to pay attention to and really care about is who makes the fast nine and who's on pole. Yeah. Most of us could probably pencil in seven of the fast nine right now. Of course, there's always some surprises, but yeah, not a ton, right? (laughs) We kind of sort of have a good idea what the fast nine might look like. So really, if the only thing to tune in for is who's going to be on pole coming off of last year where bump day was the day. Oh my goodness. Right. Ah, like just one of the modern peak of, oh my goodness. Yeah, it'd suck if we were just 33. So at least for my little meaningless suggestion, it was if you have any available or any option to help a 34th entry appear, you'd be doing yourself a lot of favors in terms of creating storylines for folks to try and follow and tune in. Uh, Let's go to Chris Ward, MP. If there are only 33 cars listed for the 500, is there any way for IMS to spice up qualifying? Not that I know, Chris. I I wish something came to mind. We've had times where it's just been 33. It hasn't been the end of the world, but just pivoting off of what I just mentioned, 
Fernando freaking Alonso getting sent home. Pato Ward getting sent home. Max Chilton getting sent home. Pippa Man, holy crap. Kyle Kaiser, holy crap. This person, holy crap. Ben Hanley, I don't even know who you are, dude. You look like you might be serving drinks at the little food stand. What? You're an IndyCar driver? Okay, sure. You're safely in the field? Holy crap. You've never <laughs> you've never turned a lap on an oval before until you got to Indy? What? And again, amazing. I know every year can't be like that, of course. And I'm not saying having 34 will just turn it into, oh my God, high drama. But at least it spares us from, oh, well, so that's the field. The minute the entry list comes up, oh, well, all right. Uh, not a lot of suspense. So I don't know what they could do in qualifying if it's just 33. I don't even know if that's... I mean, speed records are going to be a bit of a challenge. The aero screen adds 60 pounds, slows the cars down a bit. Uh, it's not necessarily a huge aerodynamic boon as well. So, you know, speeds might be down a mile an hour or two, something like that. So I I don't know, man. If we only have 33 I might just have to trick myself into the mindset of, well, hey, be thankful we can have a race. Um, yeah. Going to go to our good pal, who I give grief to sometimes because it's fun. Ryan Terpstra, MP, throwing this out there. Thanks for throwing it, Ryan. Says the race for diversity and change could be a bit self-serving in August and help Pippa Man to get a ride. If we're short of 33, the series could do far worse than helping Pippa Man secure a seat. My vote would go for Simona Di Silvestro, but we all know how hard it was for Fernando to get a visa in Catherine Legg's left leg is currently above her heart. Yes, so Cat was angling on a good Indy 500 ride, and that for sure went away. Um, Simona, yeah, point taken. I've mentioned this same thing to someone at the series that I know it's Pippa, of course, would want to be in a proper team with adequate testing and just adequate, you know, at minimum, adequate everything to come into the month of May with a, by the way, I'm just going to keep calling it the month of May. I know it's a month of August. I forget who else. A couple other friends, again, in the series. We've all just agreed. We're just going to go with it and just realize that we're wrong. Uh, Pippa, of course, would want to come into the month of May with a proper program in place and testing and all the things that any driver would want to feel good about their chances. Uh, depending on who else gets into some of the one or two other, maybe three other cars, it's very likely some of them, if not all of them, would have had zero laps in an Indy car since last year's Indy 500. So she would not be totally uh, isolated in that regard. But yeah, I'm with you, Ryan. Uh, I have mentioned the same thing to the series that, hey, if you're in a position to help be the, the catalyst in getting the field of 31 expanded out to 33, uh, you have one of 
the most popular drivers in PIPA. Last year with the Clawson Marshall Racing Team did a phenomenal job. Everybody did a phenomenal job. It was an amazing story. As we've I've said many times and written, they were the easy out. The first one counted out. Who is not going to qualify? Of course it's them. Never done this. They have no experience, etc. Wrong. <laughs> As I use my Charlie Murphy voice, wrong. No. Uh, they were habitual line steppers and made it into the show and did a, again, just an amazing job. Yeah, let's not underestimate that there are a lot of people who come to the Indianapolis 500 who will be super pissed if Tony Kanon's not in the field, Pippa Mann is not in the field, Simon Pagano, I know, made a lot of new fans with his win last year. There are some crowd favorites for sure. Pippa is certainly one of them. And so in the little thing that I shared in talking with the series, it was a lot of folks coming to the 500. Massive tradition for them. They are already, due to this Corolla virus, uh, they are giving up and forfeiting a lot of things that are their own traditions, that are norms, stuff they love that add to the quality of the event. Um, let's just tr- you know maybe think about some of the things like favorite drivers, like a Pippa. If you have a situation where there's a funded car and who should be in it, you'd be doing yourselves a lot of favors. If she was among the top one, two, or three folks in mind, if you just simply have gifts to give that would serve the fans the best and then ultimately IndyCar. Um, that seems to me to be a bit of a no-brainer. Speaking of no-brainers, my name's Marshall Pruitt. Thanks for listening to our podcast here. I'm going to move on to someone, a question about a guy who has a lot of brains, the opposite of a no-brainer. Uh, Philip Schmitz, when did Ed Carpenter Racing approach NASCAR championship crew chief slash engineer Cole Pern to engineer for Connor Daly at the Indy 500. Uh, also, do you uh, do you think I'm trying to make parse out your? Also, do you think made Cole decide to give it a go after retiring from being a crew chief in NASCAR? I don't fully get all that, but that's okay. Um, I asked. Mr. Daly, and he said he didn't know. So I apologize to fail on the first part there, Philip. Uh, as for maybe what do I think about him deciding to do this? Um, well, I do know that uh, there's a very good friend of his who's engineering within the ECR team who came, Peter, who came from NASCAR, who's also an IndyCar before that. I know that there was a Lincoln bond there that helped open up that door. So, yeah, uh, is this more than a one-off? I haven't heard anything about that, but who knows? Uh, the second part here, I appreciate this question, J.J. Gertler, because I appreciate you. Um, he says, as a follow-up to Philip's question, uh, I'd love to hear you talk about how hard it is for someone who is even a very good engineer like Cole Pern to come up to speed on an entirely new type of car and series in just a few weeks. So this is... It's one of those things that I hope it doesn't sound negative towards Cole because it absolutely is not. 
So, you know how we hear when an IndyCar driver who's never driven a cup car goes and drives a cup car and says, holy crap, uh, everything I knew that made me good in IndyCar, uh, I can't use any of it to try and be good in a cup car because it is so drastically different. Well, kind of works that way among engineers going there or coming here. You can absolutely become amazing and excellent and win championships and just be the freaking man or woo man it just rarely happens if not never happens right away uh thinking out loud brian campy coming over to engineer good old juan monterrier uh what was that 2014 when montoya uh came to indycar with penske we had a phenomenal engineer um in brian uh, who was part of that and that was great keep in mind he had a big big uh, engineering group in and around him that in terms of learning terms of truly getting up to speed about all the differences and maximizing stuff and whatnot um you know you could probably say it took a little while for uh for all that um but he picked things up pretty quickly keep in mind you know some preseason testing which was great uh you know got in what was it, a couple three four races before the 500, uh, obviously he won the 500 the following year with Montoya. Um, I think they did win a race. Uh, they, they were particularly good on the ovals. Not a surprise. Um, this is something where, uh, believe it or not, the guy coming from ovals in NASCAR was pretty darn good engineer at making the car go around in ovals in any car. So there's that. But it wasn't instant. And Brian certainly had a massive engineering team around him and had three, four races plus preseason testing plus, 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 plus to get his feet wet and really grasp the differences in engineering. I am unaware that Cole is going to have any of that. And that's where the, that's where a little bit of the, nervousness might come in does this guy have the skill to be a race winning championship winning engineer in indycar based on his nascar resume absolutely 100 percent. it's not a question yes period would i or anyone expect cole <laughs> to reach that point after four to five days of running an indycar again, depending on when we get on track next week, um, and then go into the race and be boom, I'm right there. No, and it has nothing to do with him. It's totally different vehicle, totally different everything. The tools to use, meaning mostly software, uh, just there's so much experience for him to try and soak in, then go do Fast Friday after two to three days of running, then try and get Connor as close to the front as possible. Then go and 
do carb day, then go win the race. The backstop behind all this, like Brian Campy at Penske, is the fact that that little Ed Carpenter racing team tends to do pretty darn well at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I would thoroughly expect their his co-drivers, uh, Connor's co-drivers, and the other engineers in the team to be phenomenal resources for Cole. If any issues arise, hey, Ed, we're going to try your setup this time out and see what it does. All right? That's all a standard thing across many, many teams. But, yeah, I love that we're going to have Cole Pern in IndyCar at the Indy 500. That, that's just amazing. Do I love the fact that he's... <sighs> Connor's first lap in practice will be Cole's first lap of experience running engineering an IndyCar? That's a steep, steep hill. Um, how's this, JJ? We're going to have a really good indicator of how good Cole happens to be and also the Carpenter team in how Connor runs because I have no doubt the guy is a very fast learner. In order for Connor to be truly effective, uh, there's going to have to be a insane amount of learning done and mastery demonstrated. So, um, huge task, but this guy appears to be a pretty good choice for someone to do this. Other quick thing, too. You know, it's not uncommon, if not, it's always a thing where there are a number of Indy 500 only race engineers that come in for the month of May would suggest that many of the names who are on that list uh, live outside the United States and between quarantine, travel restrictions, you name it, would also suggest, JJ, that uh, some of the team's if not many of the teams running extra cars for the 500. So this isn't limited to ECR and this isn't a Cole Pern specific thing, but um, some of the extra cars that will be running uh, might not have race engineers that we're a thousand percent familiar with, because I know for a fact, some are unable to travel from wherever they happen to be France, England, Italy, and so on. Some are just unwilling knowing the uh, Corolla virus spikes we've had going on here. So that's a separate thing for us to track, too. The, hey, uh, who's engineering your third car, fourth car, whatever else? And is it someone we really know? Or is it someone who, like Cole, is having to learn on the fly? All right, we are moving on to Joseki 100. Hey, Joseki. Speaking of the Indy 500, now that is the next race. What team do you think is entering the month of August with a high morale? And what team do you think is more anxious about it? Hashtag me personally. I think Ganassi, Penske, and Spam are pumped up to finally start practicing. This is Andretti, Foyt, Ned Carpenter Racing. I suspect a bit more anxious about coming back to a place where they are usually at their best after a difficult start to the season. Uh, let's see. If I would say the high, yeah, the Ganassi folks don't really let themselves ever get into that place, nor does Penske. I think Arrow McLaren SP is probably anxiously hoping that the momentum does not slow down that they've built, which is pretty awesome. 
say the only one really of the overall subject, the overall topic here, it's just one that I would say might be anxiety seems to be coming up coming up a lot on this episode sorry y'all if you've been dealing with anxiety i seriously suck um andretti autosports the one that certainly as you mentioned here um they are a team that have just not been as competitive as anyone expected them to be and the the most worrying thing has been the lack of consistency in their performances. So at times they have been super fast, but they've also maybe more than anticipated been not particularly fast. So it's one thing for a team to just be off, right? That that certainly happens where you go, all right, we started the year and we were just off and we've been off for a while. It's going to take us a while to figure it out and overcome that's a thing where you go well pretty much speaks to our off-season uh engineering development plan was wasn't working whether it was dampers whether it was whatever we went in the wrong direction came up with some bad math or bad concepts and it's now tainted the whole thing and it's going to take a while to start something new to dig us out of it try and find the problem catch up with everyone else that's an overall bad. What the Andretti team has had is being off just a little bit, not a lot, but just a little bit, and on top of that, being kind of sort of not sure what you're going to get from race to race. And as I mentioned plenty of times, this year is all about that. Not a lot of practice, not a lot of anything, no testing since February so or early March. This year is going to be all about the lack of consistency, but they in particular been a little bit more prone to that than one would expect from one of the big three. So obviously the Andretti folks are really darn good at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and I don't think it would be crazy to suggest that they will find their pace at Indy. This is probably one, though, where they're coming in feeling more anxious than they have in a super long time. So I'd put them there. The Foyt team, you know, we we had some competitiveness out of them for sure. Uh, If we're talking Iowa, TK was running well there, I think more second race than first. Um, What, I'm trying to remember at Texas, I think that they were pretty good too. You know, they tend to be pretty good at Indianapolis. They have some very good engineers. They have, you know, Charlie Kimball, really good on ovals, along with Tony Dalton Kellett, obviously going to be making his 500 debut. So don't know if I'd expect him to contribute a ton. But I would say, yeah, the Foyt team's been a little bit all over the place this year too. Would hope that they would find some of that uh, securitedness, some security, some securitas at the 500. Uh, beyond that, I'd say that pretty much is it. Don't know if there's too much more to read into things at this point, but yeah, Andretti really wants to get off to a good start because if they don't, oh, I don't know if they can afford to have so many races in a row that are just kind of like throwing 
darts at a dartboard while blindfolded. That's result-wise what it's felt like more often than it should. Uh, let's go to Cody, DW12. says, hey, Marshall, I heard that Elio Castroneves is looking to return to IndyCar full-time starting next season once the uh, Acura-Penske split happens in IMSA. Is that at all likely? And if so, where would be the best place for him to land? Best wishes to you and your wife. Thank you. Tim Falkowitz, our man, also says, uh, following Tim's question, where do you see the uh, other three Acura IMSA drivers going? I expect Montoya most likely will move uh, towards retirement. Dane Cameron to find another sports car ride. Any possibility we might see Ricky Taylor in a ride outside of sports cars? Man, these are some great questions again. So, Cody, let's start with you. Yeah, I am aware that Elio was, there were discussions held with the Aero McLaren SP team last year. Uh, yeah, I, I need to, I need to get a little bit of more information from a man, Elio, about this. I know I saw that he, uh, there's a story that he did. Uh, I think motorsport.com asked him about this. I know that I wrote the story on, I think, Friday that confirmed or whatever the news that the drivers have been told, uh, don't wait for us. Go if, you know, be smart and look for new jobs. And so I think that story is kind of pivoting off of that with Elio, who said, we've been told to look around, so I'm going to, and I want to go back to IndyCar full-time. Cody, I'd say that's very unlikely right now. And not because Elio could not or would not be a quality performer. So I have no doubt that if Elio were to come back to IndyCar and be that full-time guy, that he would be within 99% of the guy who was a full-timer through the 2017 season. Uh, I mean, it wasn't so long ago where he finished fourth in the championship, right? Keep in mind the people he finished fourth behind. Joseph Newgarden, Simon Pagano, and Scott Dixon. Uh, you know, what, he won? Didn't he win a race that year? I think he won Iowa. Uh, been a little while since he'd won, but you know, this guy is a finishing machine in IndyCar, not a big crasher. Uh, this is a guy who's always hunting in or around the podium, top five, top six with a top flight team. Obviously he's only ever driven for Penske, um, uh, at least in this millennium. Um, I just don't see where he fits in. That's the, that's the hard part here. Would we'd love to have him? Of course. It's a huge name, right? He would instantly shoot to most popular, uh, especially with TK getting ready to retire from full-timeness. He'd instantly be IndyCar's most popular driver. Uh, So that's a no-brainer right there, as I use no-brainer again for reasons I don't fully understand. Um, The only way I can see Elio finding a full-time ride in IndyCar is if there are sponsors that want to come with him, say Pennzoil. But granted, they have a fleet deal with Penske, so you know, keep in mind that the sponsors on Elio's cars are indeed Penske's, not personal sponsors. If there were sponsors willing to spend five, six, seven million dollars to get behind 
an Elio Castroneves entry, then that is how he returns to IndyCar full-time. Other than that, I don't see the openings. So I'm going to keep this real short here and run through it. But if we look at the Foyt team, Tony Kanon's driving a car because he has sponsors that come with him. Charlie Kimball has a sponsor that comes with him. Dalton Kellett is the spot. His parents are the sponsor of his own car, their business, right? So the only reason those cars are on track, uh, I know that ABC supply is coming in for the Indy 500 and helping, but more or less everything else, Seven Eleven and Bryant and K line and this and that and Nova Nordisk. These are all businesses that come with those drivers to then make the cars happen. So AJ Foyt enterprises does not have, six million dollars it's going to spend out of its pocket to put elio in a car uh if they could find someone to do that of course they would andretti autosport same thing uh keep in mind that alexander rossi great sponsors behind him same with ryan hunter ray same with colton herda marco has many sponsors behind him uh, Zach Veach, again, we hope that his sponsors sign on and he can stay. But if that seat magically opens up, could Andretti look at Elio? Possibly. But again, they would have to go find $6 million to run him. They're already doing that with Colton. They're already doing that with Marco and Alexander Rossi and Ryan Hunter Ray. Uh, it's not a great time coronavirus related for big amounts of money to be taken from companies. It's going to be a challenge. Aero McLaren SP, unless something really drastic happens, I think they're pretty happy with who they got. (laughs) I can't see any reason to swap either one of them out. I have not heard a thing about expanding to three cars. Could that be a thing? Sure. Maybe who pays for it again? Who knows? Carlin, there's no money there uh, to do that. At least right now, Chip Ganassi Racing. I don't think they'd be against it. I, you know, do I think that they would expand to four cars to run a guy with 20 years of IndyCar experience? Uh, I don't know. I think they feel pretty good about the guy they have who has 20 years experience uh, and the two Swedes who are doing very, very well. So once again, if someone stepped up with the money, would they consider it? Maybe. I don't know if anything would happen at a dale coin racing i don't think elio would consider coin no disrespect to coin but again he's a guy who's only driven for penske uh since 2000 he had a year before that at hogan i where i actually worked with him in cart and the year before that with bettenhausen but this guy has spent two decades living at the peak of the indycar mountain uh more or less I know that he's moved over to IMSA with Penske since uh, 2018, but still, this is the best of the best, everything, everything. Dale Coyne, I think that might be a bit of too much of a change for him. Um, he's not going to Dragon Speed. There's no money there for that. Or Dryan Reinbold. Ed Carpenter Racing, you know, Renus VK brings some money to help make that happen. So does Connor Daly. I don't think they'd be against an LEO for sure, but... Same question of how it gets paid for. Marshank Racing, they're fully embedded with Jack Harvey, as they should be. Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, eh, now that that could be one. 
again, not like they're sitting on their own money that they just pay for uh, their drivers uh, to be in the series. Uh, they go out and find a lot of money, but let's ask if a Takuma Sato might decide to hang up his helmet. Could there be a, a strong effort and a, probably a pretty positive one of marketing and Elio Castroneves and finding sponsors for him? That might be a place that has some options. Where else? Team Penske. Uh, so if Elio's going to leave or consider leaving, you know, other thing I'll mention here, these are the things that I would ask him if we have a chance. Roger's always been pretty darn loyal and taking good care of those who've taken care of him. I know that when word got out about him looking around, not totally sure about the sports car thing, uh, maybe I could go to this team or that team in IndyCar. The, the things that I've heard went something along the lines of, you can if you want to, obviously. Wouldn't stop you. But maybe you should think about long-term. I know that there are a number of Rogers, former drivers, who have auto dealerships that have helped really them help them from a financial standpoint in retirement. And I'm not saying Roger just gives out dealerships and you just, you know, show up for at, around lunchtime to collect a big bag of money each day, former driver. No, it's going to work. It's going to, you need to do all those things, but Roger is known to be a bit of a Santa Claus to those who've been loyal to him over a long time and done good things for him. I know that Elio still wants to drive, still wants to win that elusive IndyCar championship. Would say, would leaving Roger for that pursuit be something that is better weighed against possibly uh, doing some things business-wise in retirement that set you and your family up for the rest of your natural lives and your daughter and who knows who, who all else? That's ultimately up to him and his value system, what he values most. Uh, remaining loyal to Roger, though, I would say that might be the best long-term play. Tim, as for what happens to the rest, um, Montoya, speaking of money, that guy has been so smart with his. That's his reputation that all the money he's earned over all the years, he's you know not been silly with it. And do I think he needs to drive from a paying the bill standpoint absolutely not i've only heard that he's been really asking around a lot about who can i drive for you can i drive for you because he just loves driving and wants to so i think that's that just speaks to who he is uh dane cameron i know that acura honda honda performance development super high on him i don't i would say whichever team or teams end up with acura DPI IMSA deals. Uh, if Dane Cameron isn't attached to one of those cars, I will be shocked. And same thing for Ricky Taylor. Uh, I don't know if there'd be anything available for him outside of sports cars. Assume since you're sending this in, Tim, to the IndyCar show where you help me to uh, collate the questions um, that you're inquiring about IndyCar. I don't know about that. Uh, other than that test he did for Roger back in the day, which definitely showed Roger he was worth considering for IndyCar. I'd say he's young enough, so is Dane, that, you know, man, um, if one or two of them were to drive for a team that also was involved in IndyCar, I think they might realize very quickly that, oh, uh, hey, you might be uh, 
might be a dual player for us here because you can do lots for us uh, in both series. But yeah, uh, Ricky and Dane, uh, just go ahead and pencil them into whomever ends up with the uh, Acura programs to have them there. Uh, I think Elio is definitely the most expendable of the four. Not because he should be necessarily, but you know, Ricky and Dane have been sports car guys for a super long time now. That's who they're regarded as. Elio, not so much. Montoya, known as just being a super all-rounder. So um, I think he definitely fits the mold of someone that people might be interested as well. Uh, Keith Douglas Swanson says, Hey, MP, with the struggles of the Andretti cars early this season, been wondering if there's ever a point when their resources are going to get spread so thin that it hurts their chances at championships and race wins. Says now with Colton Hurd in house, Hinch at some races in the Meyer Shank Technical Association, it's as many as seven cars at times during a shortened race weekend. Says thinking back to when Ganassi took on Chilton and Kimball, it seemed maybe the additional data doesn't outweigh taking focus away from your top guys. Uh, also says kindly, thanks for what you do for the sport. Thinking about you and your family. Thanks, man. Yeah, uh, depending on the team, the answer would be yes. This team, I would say no. What we have here really is what the full measure of the Harding Steinbrenner racing team was meant to be last year. So IndyCar, IndyCar, good Lord, Andretti, had set up a full technical support and engineering support structure for Pato Award and Colton Herta uh, at the uh, Harding Steinbrenner team. Overstating the obvious, the Pato thing didn't happen. Uh, just got dialed down to one car. Uh, Nathan O'Rourke, Colton's quadruple awesome race engineer, two of them did amazing things, won a couple of races, and punched way above their financial weight. That team was on financial fumes all year long, as many of you know. Uh, with what we have now with Meyer Shank uh, and Andy Listus, Andy was meant to be Pato's engineer last year, so um, super quality guy, and look at what he and Jack are doing already, right? Um, getting Eric Bretzman out to work with Hinch, um, that's a pretty good thing for Hinch, too. This is something where Eric, the last whatever year, two or however many it was, he's uh, been involved on the Indy 500 engineering side, worked with Fernando when he was with the team in 2017. I hear you, and I'm not, not disagreeing the, boy, that's a lot of cars. I would say the biggest, biggest thing here, though, is more a case of surprise that... Some of the, call it the Chilton Kimball layer of drivers, have not exactly been up running where we thought they would be. Thought Zach Veach in his third year, still learning, but thought he would be, he and his engineer Mark Bryant would be a little bit of a sharper, you know, sharper tack. They have had some pace, obviously, but they've also had some misfortune, some driving errors. I mean, there's been a litany of things. Marco's season has just, you know, falling apart yet again, and it's not his fault. Garrett Mother said his uh, race engineer, not his fault. Again, we're not talking fault. Just oh man, this thing's uh, been become another kick in the nuts. Obviously, his tenth in the second race at Iowa was a welcome thing. 
uh, for sure. But <sighs> Cartoon Anvil just has left permanent dents in Ryan Hunter Ray and Alexander Rossi way too many times this year already. Uh, when it hasn't, you know, they've been competitive top three, top four, top five or so, but they've just had a lot of misfortune. So half of Hunter Ray's season has been terrible, if not a little bit more than half. Uh, I think exactly half of Alexander's season has been terrible. It's really blighted the two of their, their seasons so far, but you know, all it takes is a good Indy 500 uh, and a good gateway. And they're looking stronger and back where we expect them to be. Colton, you know, he had a brutal Iowa with a pair of 19th, but this is a guy who was cruising second or third in points until things went sideways. Uh, Colton was really the exception to the rule at Andretti, free of the drama, the the misfortune or, or whatever, until Iowa. But yeah, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a false read in some regards. When things haven't gone wrong for Rossi, he's been there thereabouts. Same for Hunter Ray. They've just had a lot of, a lot of, you know, Ryan Hunter Ray took himself out twice, two days in a row at Iowa. Good lord, you know, Alexander, frankly, was the only one that offered any real saving grace. You know, Colton wasn't running poorly by any means, but the big crash uh, to for round one and Sunday, obviously, or Saturday, the second race wasn't great. So yeah, um, that consistency thing, some of it's been engineering a little all over the place compared to what we expect. Uh, Colton not really being in the hunt for anything race winnie <laughs> new word there, uh, race winnie. That's probably been the biggest surprise of the year so far. If we're talking among the Andretti drivers, we, I expected him to be right up front with Hunter Ray and Rossi, if not edging them for kind of P1 within the team. Mentioned that during the preseason. Um, or at least to really give Rossi a crazy hard time in Hunter Ray as well. Um, you know, Alexander has not yet looked like he was ready to go grab a pole and win. Same thing with Hunter Ray. Uh, same thing with Colton. That's been the surprise. So, but that's not because they've forgotten how to drive or the engineers forgotten how to engineer. I would say that, as has happened to Andretti once or twice in the last decade, they either missed something in their off-season R&D plan or, as is sometimes the case, Penske and Ganassi have actually just found more done. So it might not be a case of going down the wrong path developmentally and getting screwing up. It could just be a case of, hey, you found some good things. But guess what? The other two members, the big three, found even more. And and I know Colton's terrible Iowa certainly dropped him from, what, I think second in points to seventh or something like that, leaving Iowa. Uh, so now Graham Ray Hall's ahead of him, Pato Awards there, but, you know, minus a terrible weekend that wasn't totally his fault, uh, Andretti Autosport has a guy sitting second or third or something in that uh, range, leaving Iowa, so there's a little bit of hope there. So that just tells me eh, they might not be on the cusp of winning yet, but they're not too far out. 
I, I will just throw in one more thing to close here, Keith. I can guarantee you, I'll put all the money, granted I don't have much, but I'll put all my money on the fact that since they got home from Iowa that there has been no sleep in terms of finding speed, finding some of the reasons why they aren't uh, running up front and truly, truly, truly uh, doing their darndest to overcome that because, yeah, uh, it's just something they got to do because I know that no one there is going to be happy, happy, happy until they hopefully unload quickly. So I guarantee you that they were already working insanely hard, Keith, but uh, whatever is whatever extra gear they might have or extra hour that they weren't already sleeping, well, they're now into negative daily sleep. Uh, let's go to Christopher Davis. Marshall, what is up with the poor audio quality between the drivers and crew? I can do Zoom calls with several friends throughout the country with near-perfect audio quality, but IndyCar and the other series are using antiquated technology that can't be understood when played on TV. I have to believe there's a better way. Um, well, we're talking the difference, Christopher, between radio frequencies and interference, maybe, and multiple radio frequencies. Uh, and using internet connected wired, I realize it might be on Wi-Fi, but nonetheless, uh, things that are connected to some form of landline. Um, so yeah, uh, maybe you didn't know that, but yeah, uh, there's zero relationship between doing a zoom call with great quality and folks using radio wave based communication. So for talking you know, driver and crew talking while the driver's on track. Um, that's just kind of the norm, uh, depending on what other radio waves are out there, radio stations, uh, TV, you name it, broadcasting can bounce signals pretty crazy or crazily. So there's that. Do know that in some instances, teams do plug directly into the car uh, to use you know, when the car obviously when the car's on pit lane, it'd be pretty funny if it was on track. That'd be a very long lead. Someone had to kind of hold up in the air. Um, that that can be done. Uh, so you not only do get higher quality, but it's also definitely uh, super private. Um, but yeah, I'd say that's kind of the thing. So um, you might be expecting more from something where technology's not quite there yet. Uh, maybe in the future, though, I'm sure it'll be a heck of a lot better. Um, I mean, if we're just talking about radio waves, I was loading our, when I was working at Pfeiffer Ridge racing towards the end of 1989, we were loading up to go down to Del Mar for the Del Mar Grand Prix IMSA race, GTP, GTO, GTU. I don't remember if it was a season finale for IMSA that year, but loading up to go down and I was loading up our transporter, our semi. Uh, which I did by myself, which is kind of fun, uh, and was listening to the radio, and I'm forgetting when this was, October-ish, something like that, was standing on one of the long aluminum ramps uh, that went up, uh, not the lift, the hydraulic lift, we didn't have that, we just had long aluminum ramps um, and had to jack them up so 
to roll the cars in. It was pretty archaic, but was standing basically in the middle of one of these long, probably 15 or 20-foot aluminum ramps and was had the radio cranked up in the transporter, lit, whatever, just to amuse myself. And just remember, it started skipping. And it wasn't a case of the whatever it would have been, a record back in 89 or a cassette tape, whatever it might have been. It wasn't a case of the source of the music skipping. It was the signal fading in and out and being really choppy like that. So again, it might have sounded like there was something wrong with the audio uh, scratched or something like that. What it was, as I learned, because as I was standing in the middle of this 20-foot-long aluminum ramp uh, connected to the back of the trailer um i had to steady myself because all, all of a sudden it felt like i was on a 20 foot aluminum surfboard which is swaying and bouncing up and down and this was the big loma prieta earthquake that killed way too many people and leveled sections of highway and just wreaked havoc throughout the bay area um the earthquake and the force of the earthquake the force of the earth moving. This was down basically by Laguna Seca, and I was at Sears Point. In terms of driving, it was, that'd be what, three-hour drive? Two and a half, three-hour drive south? The force, just the force of the earth moving from that earthquake was sending ripples radiating, radiating outwards, obviously, but those ripples were knocking the radio signals out of the air. That's where the skipping and pausing came from because what was just a strong radio signal being sent out and picked up by uh, the receiver in the transporter, uh, yeah, the force of the earthquake itself was just knocking those radio waves out of the air as it resonated outwards. So I'm not saying that's a reason. I'm just sharing the fact that, like, hey, uh, there's a variety of things. You, there could be tons of radio communication going on uh, between cabs between air control towers between you name it uh there's lots of things that degrade audio radio signal quality uh let's see ben cohen mp after watching imsa's race at road america maybe wonder if the aero screen would actually allow for any car to be better suited to run in heavy rain as long as the track didn't have standing water issues am i way off on the thinking or would that be another potential unintentional positive of the safety device from what i've heard and you know, I, I can't think of any like crazy downpour type rain like we saw at IMSA uh, for IndyCar teams to deal with with the aero screen. But um, I've been told that it has performed very, very well and beaded water away and it's gone around and, you know, it hasn't caused real major vision problems, but it hasn't been put through the worst like we saw uh, at certain portions of the track in road America to really answer that extreme scenario properly, Ben. So in theory, it'd do okay, but we just haven't seen it put to that full crazy test yet. Uh, Cade Foling MP had been watching old Indy 500s in preparation for August. says, I forgot how dominant Dario Franchitti was in May. Seems like he's been a little forgotten in IndyCar history. His name is rarely mentioned on telecasts, and I find myself sometimes forgetting about him when talking about all the best drivers of all time. Where does he go in your list of all-time IndyCar drivers, and would we be 
um, talking about him similar uh, to how Scott Dixon has talked about if his career was not cut short. I'm looking forward to what sounds like good news uh, with what's going on in the home front with your wife. And thanks for everything you do. Well, thanks, Kate. Yeah, uh, continually positive things on the home front. My wife has asked that we just keep that private among family and, and close friends and such. But yeah, um, just nothing's fixed, nothing's solved, but just ongoing positivity. And that's just a really beautiful thing. Uh, usually because when you're fighting cancer and you're fighting mobility problems, setbacks are a unwelcome friend, <laughs> air quote friend. And I'm not saying that we'll never have those again. I'm just saying it's been a little while. And so we've had a pretty good streak going of positivity. Great question about Dario. Context certainly seems like we could maybe start applying. You know, his last Indy 500 was 2013. Um, you know, he done the last one he won was 2012. I haven't given this one a good enough thought. And I feel dumb and bad for that Cade because I should have uh, I'm fortunate Dario's been a really really good hashtag me personally uh, personal friend for many years and I'm a bit embarrassed to admit till you asked this I hadn't really th- run my man through that thought process I would tell you this as a three-time winner of the 500, I can think of very few who've won three or fewer Indy 500s that I would compare him to where I'd say they were better. Um, you know, and I realize that that's maybe a bit of uh, a sound a bit nasty or I don't know, however it might come across, but you know, there are some that have won one, two, three, hell, there's some that have won one that might be the best ever, but would just say that although he's quote only won three, I think of Dario as a member of the four timers club, not necessarily because a fourth was, robbed in some sort of way where you know spoken about like paul tracy for example you know there's still some to this day who insist paul tracy is the winner of the 2000 i'm i never put up too much of an argument about that as well because uh taking nothing away from elio you know i think paul tracy could very well be a one-timer and elio could be a two-timer and i don't think that would be a, a bad thing for either guys either guy but Talent-wise, I have always put Dario in that mental four-timers club. Better than Rick Mears? I don't know if I'd go that far. (laughs) That's kind of the gold standard. I know that for some, A.J. Foyt is the peerless among all peerless, the first four-timer. I mean, again, all... So... I can just go with the guy who I regard to be the bestest of the bestest and that's rick mears for some it could might absolutely very well be al unser it could be aj uh i think i think if all those guys dario included were 30 years old 
in a four car team, everything truly identical cars set up to their individual exact perfect liking. Nothing changes throughout the Indy 500 to take them out of that super happy, comfortable spot. And so for 500 miles, all four cars, perfectly identical, handling exactly the way each one of them wants, horsepower down to a within one horsepower of each other, et cetera, et cetera. No tires going off, no overheating, underheating, just nothing. Everything perfect for 500 straight miles. Rick Mears is drinking the milk. Who's second? I might put Dario in there. I know. I'm sure for some of you who grew up watching AJ Foyt the whole time or saying I need to, they need to ship me off to the moon or, or wherever else. Um, I, that guy, yeah, that guy, so smart, so crafty asked Kumasato so crafty, but also, you know, he's the type of guy from a preparation standpoint, from a institutional encyclopedic knowledge standpoint, he treated, he treated every race this way, but in particular, the 500 treated Indianapolis like it was a month long bar exam. You know, just every single thing, every little nuance, knowing that the 1943 statute argued in this courthouse allowed this thing to happen. I mean, this guy, every little thing, really nothing that he left uh, unexplored, nothing that he didn't go back into, go back to his giant book of notes and set up and whatever. And yeah, I realized, you know, his first couple of Indy 500s course learning wasn't exactly the bestest ever was a Mears or a Foyt or an Unser better in their first Indy 500 or two or three. I don't think anyone would probably argue that a whole bunch, but if we're just talking getting to that peak and then staying there, he didn't do it for as many years as AJ or Al or, you know, I'm trying to think Rick. Yeah, or Rick. Might have been similarish numbers for Rick, but you know, so there's that part, of course. But if I'm just talking about pure talent, this mystical mythical, they're all the same age, everything's identical, who wins? I think you'd be silly to not point at Rick. That guy is just the slyest fox, the fast the everything. There is almost something a little mystical about the guy when it came to the Indy five hundred. Dario has a little bit of that. Um, plus being such a student, plus being so fast, plus having the strategery side, you know, letting Takuma Sato play himself out and, you know, just some of these things. So I realize he's a good hashtag personally, me personally friend. I guarantee you he doesn't listen to the podcast, is not going to hear this. And I doubt anyone's going to bother to listen to it and tell him what I said. So again, none of this is blowing smoke. Um, he's got much better things to do with his wife and daughters and formula E broadcasting right now. So pretty much guarantee you, this is just conversation between us, but yeah, 
uh, you know, I'm sure we could go back and find multiple drivers who aren't three or four timers and say, what about this guy? What about that guy? And there's super good arguments to be made. I'm just keeping things a little bit simple by sticking with the drivers in his echelon of wins. And yeah, um, could there be others who might bump him down to third, fourth, fifth, or 10th? It's possible, but at least using my little simplified methodology. Yeah. Uh, that guy'd be pretty darn hard to beat. Uh, let's see. We are kind of sort of getting towards the close here. Uh, Jimmy Johnson appeal. This comes from Tony chef 20. If Jimmy Johnson decides to race in any car in any capacity, how much crossover appeal do you think he will bring? He's one of NASCAR's biggest stars, but for some reason, I don't think he will bring many new eyes over from IndyCar. You know, it's a really interesting question. Tony chef 20. How popular is Jimmy Johnson? I love the guy. I think the guy's awesome. Uh, I just don't know how many fans here towards the end of his career, how huge the, the JJ army happens to be. So that's both a questioning question. Like, I don't know if it's as big as we might think. Also, there's some ignorance in there. It's not like I truly track fan polls and whatever for NASCAR, but I can tell you that the Kyle Bushes and name some of the other guys just sure seem to command a lot more interest, um, both story-wise, social media-wise. I know that there are tons of folks that respect him for his seven championships. I do think, to your point that I think you might be asked, getting at here, Tony Chef 20, if this were five years ago, I'm trying to remember his exact last title, but you know, if this was on the heels of his seventh championship, Thank you. Good night. Dropping the mic, going to IndyCar. I think there might be um, kind of sporadic wins for the last handful of years, if not winless and such from time to time. I don't expect there to be a huge NASCAR crossover in terms of fans. And, you know, we can look at Danica coming back and doing her final Indy 500. She, for whatever period, was super crazy popular in NASCAR. Obviously, left IndyCar as the most popular driver. Didn't seem to offer any kind of bump. So, do I think that there might be some recognition, name recognition, to get fans to come out to some races where, you know, maybe they'll frankly get to see Jimmy Johnson for the first time? Not on track, but I can go to an autograph session and Jimmy Johnson's going to be there. And... You know, accessibility is something that IndyCar offers that NASCAR really doesn't. So maybe there might be something there. If it's promoted heavily, truly heavily, tune in, come see his debut and this and like, you know, that might add some okay numbers to the gate. But I just, uh, to your point, I don't feel like this is going to be a massive thing. What I would hope it could do is just bring some other drivers to consider it right if there are some other nascar drivers who i who can see a jimmy can see a seven timer doing well in indycar i think that might remove some of the uh some of the concern about whether it's too different uh for them to fully figure out in a short amount of time 
So, yeah, love to have them. I expect there to be something. I know media-wise, that is where I would probably expect Tony Chef 20 for there to be more folks coming out with their TVs, cameras, and their TV hosts and microphones. And I think the media side and the coverage side is where we would get the biggest bump. And so in theory, that would bring more IndyCar stories to the masses than we get without a Jimmy Johnson. Maybe that could then turn into some more ticket sales, but I just don't know how big of a crazy, rabid, traveling fan base Jimmy has in 2020 to bring to IndyCar. Uh, Let's see. Matt Anderson... You have sent in a question, my friend, that is 253 words. (laughs) It's uh, almost a tenth, maybe even an eighth of the total number of words in uh, this week's episode. I'm not sure if I'm going to get to this one right now, brother, but uh, I'll see where I'm at in the clock and see if I can come back to it before uh, I wrap here because I need to do that pretty soon. Um By the way, I paused to uh, have a conversation with Stefan Wilson, by the way. So it's now, uh, what time is it here? Uh, 8.16. So, yeah, not exactly linear time clock from when I started to when I'm finishing here. Um, We're going to go to a guy in a grumpy bear suit at Darusler on Twitter. Got a general IndyCar question. Which do you think we will see first in a full-time or full-time-ish capacity? A black driver in IndyCar or an openly gay driver in IndyCar? Wow. That's a predictive thing that I don't know if I'm fully equipped to answer. We certainly know that in terms of gay drivers, uh, there will not be a first gay IndyCar driver. To your point, though, when we do have our first openly gay IndyCar driver, that would be first, a first. Uh, and I will also, if we're talking openly, openly state, I can't wait for it to happen. It'd be awesome. Um, wow. I love the question because it makes me think about if and how and when. It also bums me out a little bit, uh, Derus Lar, because I can't really come up with a timeline or a suggestion that one might happen before the other. I know of no openly gay drivers coming up the junior open wheel ladder or competing in similar-ish type series where you might say, oh, this person's racing in European GP something, Formula 2, whatever, or top line in IMSA. Those things are rocket fast cars and he or she could come right over and adapt quickly. So, again, on the openly gay part, I just don't know because it would either require someone who is uh, closeted to reveal themselves. So it's either a case of someone who is letting the world know that they are and then coming to IndyCar. That'd be awesome. Or a driver needing to come up the ladder who's yet to develop the skills, uh, who's working their way up uh, to get here, who is open. Um, In either instance, hope it happens. 
And I know that we're in a super macho sport. I also know that I'm born and raised in the San Francisco Bay area where sexuality, homosexuality is not really something that is, uh, an issue. If anything, we're kind of one of the global rallying points for your safe and accepted here. So that's the guy talking into the microphone. I realize that for some who are listening, it may be the exact opposite. Just can only share who I am and the scenario that I grew up in. So love to see it because it'd just be a normal part of my daily life and reality of folks who are of whatever uh, gender and or sexual orientation totally normal in my world so i love normalcy coming to all facets of what i do as for a black driver again who knows uh i think miles Rowe is going to get more tests and hopefully do some racing in usf 2000 bottom rung of the road to indy we would have to <laughs> we would have to do a lot of if 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 type stuff here if that continues to go well and if he demonstrates winning talent and can then be moved up to Indy Pro, Indy Lights, whatever, if, 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 it could be Miles Rowe. Um, I don't really know of any other black drivers who are not at the highest level, that being Lewis Hamilton or Bubba Wallace, uh, Antron Brown in NHRA. I don't know of any other black drivers who are there thereabouts we're talking the indycar world or even coming over from other series so i don't have an answer for you because you know if there's a a first and what might be easier there's nothing easy in either one so sorry if i didn't give you an answer but i don't know if it's one that can be answered right now uh jeremy charette how you doing jeremy as always i love listening to willie t ribs and formula one's beyond the grid podcast such a great storyteller, which made me wonder what happens when you get Willie T and Uncle Bobby in the same room together. Well, um, you combine the word bowl and poop, and you put them together, and you say, boy, that's flying around a lot. Uh, yes, uh, two of the great storytellers. Two, one is a great story fabricator. The other one's a pretty darn good embellisher. Uh, and they love each other. I mean, Willie T earlier this year, I believe, or was it over, I don't know, Christmas, whatever, uh, flew down and spent time, uh, with the, uh, Unser family and, uh, uncle Bobby in particular. And they just love each other. They get on like, like brothers and it's, it's worrying <laughs> those two, uh, that that's just a, uh, that's a rolling me too movement. That's a rolling, Oh man, yeah. Uh, turn all the cameras off, all the all the electronic devices. We need a uh, EMP machine to just knock out all, any and everything. So it's just truly they can talk. Nothing will be recorded because yeah, lawsuits and whatever would be following. Uh, they're just the best. Willie and I go back a little ways. Love that guy. Obviously, I'm saying nothing new. Uh, he and I talk all the time. Uncle Bobby a little bit less so in terms of frequency of talking, but uh, I think we share a similar passion for one another. And of the many great gifts I've been given by Robin Miller over the years, it's his 
all his relationships with the legends of Indianapolis, one of them being Uncle Bobby, who every year comes up to the media center and sits with us and earmuffs time, just talks shit for two hours, three hours, you name it. And it, it, I don't know why it never occurred to me to record this or, you know, what, not everything's meant for recording, but, um, oh, it's just insane. A friend of mine from, a friend of mine, uh, from road and track came out five years ago, maybe something like that. Um, and it was for an article about something. Um, sat with us for a day or two and just followed me around. And one of the things that happened was while sitting next to me, Uncle Bobby arrived and came up and sat down between him and Robin. And my friend Sam, who, while much younger than me, you know, knows his history, knows Uncle Bobby about, you know, knows everything about Uncle Bobby that makes him crazy and great and amazing and all those things, he would just turn to me about every 10 minutes and go, holy shit. Just, you know, just eyes wide open. Like I am getting, not only am I getting to sit next to icon, legend, hero, you name it, Bobby Unser, I'm getting to be on the inside listening to his unfiltered, uh, just knives out, just in his protected bubble of friends and just say everything he, that comes to mind. So it was so fun because I, that's how I was the first couple of years at the speedway with uncle Bobby coming up just like, Oh my God, that's uncle Bobby. First of all, but then just listening to him, just keep firing both barrels and loading ammo and loading and loading for a couple hours. Just like, Oh my God. Um, seeing Sam go through that process and just keep turning over and kind of mouthing Holy shit. to me getting to hear all these crazy stories. That's uncle Bobby. So we've been super fortunate. We've recorded many hours of podcasts and, and all kinds of stuff talking about all kinds of things. I know that he's been with, uh, on dinner with racers, my friends there, you know, a couple of times as well. Um, he tells some amazing stories, right? And so that's what Uncle Bobby's known for, amazing stories. I'm just sharing with you that there's the knowing these are stories for the public, Uncle Bobby, and then there's the in the bubble, no recording devices among friends and family type thing where you go, Oh my God. <laughs> uh, yes. I, I want to record these and present them to you, but I don't want uncle Bobby to, uh, yeah, I don't want him to face the repercussions of that. So yeah. Uh, and I'll just tell you too, there's at least one time, if not two times, every time that I speak with Willie T Jeremy, where it is, shrieking laughter on my end not just because what he says is so funny but because it is so 
shocking and wrong. It just, again, when I say hashtag me too movement, I don't, I'm not trying to be comical about sexual abuse, predatory, anything like that. And I'm not saying that he said anything like that. It's just kind of a generalism of like, Oh man, you're saying stuff that's going to get you in big trouble here. Non-specific to women. I need to really do really clarify that. But just the kind of things where you go, Oh my God, ribs, are you, you've lost it. I mean, what in your brain, what is going on inside there? You can't say that. I also maybe say some things back to him that qualify because uh, it kind of becomes a little bit of one-upsmanship, Jeremy, to be honest. So he'll say something, and then my mind starts spinning about, all right, well, then how can I top you? And I'll throw something back that yeah, he had just he has this kind of cackling, kind of <laughs> kind of laugh uh, that you only hear when you really get him good. So, yeah, I don't know. We enjoy abusing each other, I guess, and saying things that are never meant for public consumption and uncle bobby when you get him in that little bubble of friends and family it's stuff that you're never going to hear in a podcast seeing a video on a you name it because uh yeah there it's just not meant but those two together they light the sky on fire if you let them uh jordan darwin marshall any more details in the ferrari looking at running the irl back in 1998 story you did for road and track not a ton, my friend, not a ton, uh, can tell you that there was some very serious, I'm telling you this and I'm willing to tell you this story, but you absolutely cannot reference me. Uh, anyway, you got to go find out everything else on your own. I can't share the photos with you. I can't do whatever else, which I respected. And I still don't fully understand why. Another quick little thing to note here I was trying to think what motor they would use. Since a four-liter naturally aspirated V8 was the formula at the time, I don't know, maybe something out of... I mean, Ferrari didn't make a lot of truly crazy awesome road cars in the late uh, 1990s. Obviously, the F40 was a bit aged by then, twin-turbo V8. Um, But yeah, uh, more than anything, I was just trying to think through, Jordan, what they would use that was kind of production-ish based to do that. So... Yeah. Uh, right turn lover. Marshall Acura recently inquired about a swift kinetic energy recovery system decision from IndyCar. Any news on the uh, the other form of energy recovery system for ovals? Uh, and the idea is to package the new uh, unit into the Delar DW12 platform, the new uh, Kurs solution. It says, is the packaging done by the engine manufacturer or by Delara? Well all great questions i wish i had answers to right turn lover been playing a little bit of phone tag with jay fry since we spoke last week and so these are some of the things i'm hoping to get caught up on uh, i would believe since the curves would be spec and would fit between the motor and the uh, gearbox sitting in the bell housing um, that's pretty much an indycar spec thing uh, as for battery placement and such, I believe that would also be an IndyCar thing, but question is where? Would that require any tub modifications? I think it might, because uh, they're not small, nor are they light. I don't know if you'd really want to put one of those in a side pod mounted to the floor 
Um, you know, that seems like something that can get smashed pretty easily in a crash, if not flung, since it's a heavy piece. So would that want to be centralized somewhere attached to the tub, notching out the rear portion uh, where you see that's what happens pretty much with all Formula One solutions uh, right in front of the motor at the base? Um, I'm not sure. So my guess is, yes, Delar would absolutely be involved here. Uh, there's, you know, this secondary curse system uh, that might be running off of turbo or something since there's not much braking to regenerate, obviously, with a traditional curves. Um, there's just a lot more questions as to how this would happen uh, than answers at the moment. I do know that, yes, the plan is for all of this to come to life. Well, the plan has been uh, to go into the current chassis. So, yeah, hope to have some follow-ups here. Uh, Charming Charles 2896. Not sure if I recall getting a question from you before. If not, thanks for sending something in. Do you think Marathon Petroleum sale of Speedway to the owners of 7-Eleven will affect IndyCar's fuel sponsorship? It very well could. I mean, these things always happen. Hey, congratulations on the contract you did with somebody. Okay, um, you know, we're going to have to honor that. The, the, the entity that we're purchasing has a legally binding... Uh, contract. I'm sure in that contract it says, you know, this carries if your company is purchased. Um, this carries over to the new owners and they accept this if they were to buy it. What I don't know is if the new owners would say, cool, and once it's done, we're done. We've seen this happen when companies are bought uh, and they have these legacy sponsorships with a series or a team and with the first opportunity, they cut bait or go to the series or team and say, hey, what is it going to cost for us to get out early? I know we got a couple of years left, but we would rather be done now. Um, you know, these are all things that are kind of normal. Or you have a CEO who loves racing, who signed the deal, and there's a new CEO comes in and they don't, and they're doing the same thing. Might not have been a sale of the company, but they're looking for ways to get out of it because they don't see the value. So, Absolutely, you can absolutely expect conversation between 7-Eleven and IndyCar to take place and to see if uh, this is something that would both continue and run through the full length of the agreement. If it might change, um, again, will those speedways stay as speedways in some places or will they all become 7-Elevens? I don't know. Um, expect conversations to be held for sure. Uh, let's see, Todd Murray, in a moment of Wikipedia nerdery, I stumbled onto the American IndyCar series started by Bill Tempero. Series ran in the 1980s and 90s, totally unbeknownst to me. What was that all about? Could you shed, shed some light on the series? Um, I'll said, wait a sec, Wikipedia shows the Buick Menard engine scored wins in 1998 through 2000. Yeah, and I have been promising at some point in time to do a podcast about this and need to about the AIS series. Uh, so if you're a fan of football and you know about the NFL national football league, and then you know about the XFL, both the old crappy one, uh, from whatever it was 1999 or 2000, 2001, uh, whatever year that was. And then even the new one, um, yeah, nothing like the big one paled in comparison, a lot of B players, C players, D players that was AIS, uh, except for it was like Z players. 
and or cars. There was some talent to come out of it. Of course, Robbie Unser was there. Buddy Lazier was there. I mean, there are some names that you would recognize that came out of AIS, but for the most part, it was a amateur type series. Uh, the thing that they did differently, make things a lot cheaper, a little bit more Saturday night dirt track kind of approach is the turbocharged Cosworth engines and such of the era were not used. They were stock block V8s. And so that was done for the majority of the AIS's uh, existence. You mentioning that Buick Menard, I'm guessing turbo engines won late 90s in AIS. If so, I'm unaware of that as well. News to me. But yeah, for the most part, it was getting one-year-old, two-year, three, however many-year-old IndyCar chassis and bolting V8s into the back of them, uh, often not fitting greatly and engine covers no longer fitting and bodywork being a little cobbled together. This was a super low buck, uh, mostly West Coast-ish, Southwest running series. If they ventured elsewhere, maybe they did. I just don't remember, but... Uh, this was just a cheap IndyCar alternative, and the cars were old. They weren't pretty. They just had big, lumpy V8s in the back that, you know, seriously could have come out of a sprint car, a stock car, whatever. Kind of, you know, not too far from the first real full IRL formula. N- nice new cars, though, but, you know, big, loud, blaring V8s in the back of them. Um, this was just bargain basement racing, and it was a thing that allowed a lot of drivers who never would have gotten a shot in IndyCar would have never been able to afford it to go and play and do something kind of like IndyCar. Uh, it was a bit rogue in that capacity. Uh, they promoted themselves great on a local basis, but were never seen, recognized, or considered by IndyCar. It was never a place where teams were looking there for talent. Those who came out of the series into IndyCar were... You know, it was great for them, but that they did that. Uh, the series did not, uh, you know, the series did not promote them like, hey, you won the New Lights Championship and here's a million bucks, go to IndyCar. Nope, wasn't a thing at all. So uh, I got to see him run like once, twice, maybe three times. Um, you know, it's fun, it's loud, and, you know, whatever. These weren't real, like, superstars filling out most of the field, but. If you like that kind of racing and you aren't too caught up, uh, it was more like a great high school, you know, Friday night lights kind of Friday night football game, uh, high school level. Uh, it certainly was nothing anyone would confuse with top tier bestest of the bestest, but hell, you listen to my show, so you certainly aren't too caught up in top tier bestest of the bestest. All right, couple, uh, what are we done? What are we down to here? Yeah, we're just about done. Uh, Craig Johnson, MP, tell me about your worst car, best car, worst car, dream car that you engineered in your days working on open wheel cars. Continued prayers for you and your wife. Thank you, Craig. Uh, Best car. I really liked the previous generation Formula Mazda. Uh, Pro Mazda would have been called before that, just Formula Mazda. Uh, built by Elan Technologies, carbon fiber tub, uh, twin rotor, Mazda motor, making 250 whatever-ish type horsepower, maybe a little bit more. 
those things ran forever, like 14, 15 years or what? I'm, I think exaggerating a little bit, but it felt like they were around forever. You know, just recent replace in the last year or two with uh, the Indy Pro 2000 chassis. I loved engineering those. They were so much fun, Craig, because you could do almost anything to them and still get speed out of them. Um, I remember one guy that I engineered, Mike Gouache, a local guy, went on, became a, a IMSA sports car champion. He was learning, really didn't know. He was an older gentleman, but very successful in business, loved racing, treated his pro Mazda team like it was a Formula One team. You know, he really wanted to do everything properly. He was still learning about driving, though, so I was the engineer, but also trying to coach him as well. And I just loved the fact that, you know, Mike didn't have a great feel for the car. You know, he, he'd hustle it to the best of his ability, but he couldn't really tell you what was going on front or back. And so I just was making normal changes like I would for any driver. And I don't mean, you know, indie car driver, but someone kind of at Mike's stage. And there wasn't a lot making normal changes that he could feel just wasn't attuned to call it normal changes. So I just throw crazy giant changes like, Hey, we're going to totally disconnect the front anti-roll bar at Sears point at Sonoma raceway. You'd never do that ever, but let's do that. Front of the car is going to move all over the place, but boy, you're going to be able to feel it, but I'm going to have to support the living poop out of the rear of the car because diagonally right front to left rear and left front to right rear well when you turn in the front's just going to be super soft and supple and it's going to roll and move but you're going to like it because you're going to feel it and it's going to be dr- a drastic change that you can feel but if i don't really stiffen things up at the back of the car it's just going to fall over itself and probably spin every time so let me do that and again i never do that i would never do that for you know someone with more experience or or more feel but ah, did it it's just like i was just pulling stuff out of my behind like yeah let's see and he went just as fast if not a little bit faster like this is amazing all right just again spitballing here uh we're gonna reconnect the front bar disconnect the rear which around serious point you really don't want to do because it's gonna fall all over it's really gonna fall all over itself um but let me make some changes at the front of the car and we'll, you know, and we'll try and make, see how he responds to that. And he loved it. And he went even faster. And I'm sitting here going, none of this should be happening, but it's such this car. And I keep in mind, we were doing okay. You know, we weren't, weren't really going to break track records, but I just love the fact, Craig, that, uh, kind of do anything with it and at least with dealing with mike at his stage he could get something out of it i just learned to love the car so when i did some more engineering with it afterwards i'm like yeah you're a little you're a little gem here like we can truly we can truly play and try some crazy stuff and you're not just i'm talking to the car uh you're not just going to reject it uh let's see worst car i'm trying to think open wheel apologize there's nothing really jumping out here 
some sports car stuff is jumping out, but nothing really in the open wheel. It's like, oh my God, that's the worst. Um, dream car. I mean, you know, come on now. Uh, I've spent a lot of time on the phone, putting together a feature for the next issue of racer magazine on the 2000 Renski, the highly Penske modified Renard chassis. I mean, yeah. Engineering that was Gilles trying to go for 243 miles an hour at Fontana. That'd be pretty amazing. But I mean, I could answer this one all day long, Craig. Uh, let's talk 1972 or 75 Eagle Indy cars. Um, I mean, there's so many different Penske's, of course, that I'd love to. I'd love to go back and engineer a, a Duesenberg Miller with one of my heroes, Jimmy Murphy. And I mean, I could play this game all day, all day long, my friend. Uh, JJ Gertler, you might be the one taking us home. Uh, Marshall, with IndyCar's interest in staying close to the heartland and understanding that a number of races, um, that the number of races is becoming an increasing challenge, here's an answer. The weekend after the 8500, have a quadruple header either at Putnam Park or Nelson Ledges. Ha! Nelson Ledges, you're the man. And just to give everybody a fair shot, one race would be in the current DW12 chassis, two in the driver's pit mopeds, and the other two in team golf carts with the team owner riding shotgun. And he says for multi-car teams, he would have to get out and switch driver's seats every three laps. This gives the smaller one-car teams an advantage. What would be the over-under and how many laps before Chip would grab the steering wheel? Uh, Yeah, first of all, Chip would not let anyone else uh, wheel anything. He might even try and fit into a DW12. He's been working out a lot lately, by the way. Have you noticed? He's uh, slimming down even more. I need to uh, follow in his... Uh, path here yeah i love the nelson ledges reference right i mean that's just too wacky uh to not consider that one (sighs) don't underestimate roger don't underestimate roger that guy's slim too i think it's just because he's been working so much um that guy was really good in a race car by the way so there's that um let's see if dragon speeds elton julian is there he's really good in a race car like seriously really good in a race car uh zach brown former racer that's a cool thing dale coin former racer michael andretti obviously uh i mean there's I'm trying to think bobby rahal obviously uh ed carpenter currently mike shank was a very good race car driver uh who else trevor i don't know about trevor carlin that's what i i don't know if trevor actually did some driving um i need to ask him about that aj foyt obviously uh one of the best of all time just about every just about every you know what might be fun is some of the uh i think we might need to modify this just a little bit jj we need to have one of those races in your quadruple header whatever it is with all of the co-entrance only so not not the primary entrance right so mike harding george steinbrenner uh both curb and agajanian uh kazumichi go vassar sullivan i mean we think jimmy's gonna win this you know pretty straightforward uh reinbold either i mean maybe pops dryer someone representing pops dryer uh, for sure, uh, both Letterman and Lanigan, right? Then we've got the Citrone and Buell, so it'd probably be Buell versus Vassar. I think Vassar, the champion of those two, stands out there. 
But yeah, I think we need to do the all co-entrant race. Because, you know, Chip versus Dale versus Michael versus Bobby versus Roger, you know, I can't tell you who's going to win, but I'm just saying that these, by and large, were all championship winning team owners or in terms of driving, you know, they were champions or close to or pretty darn good. I think we need to get all the the co-entrants in. That would be high comedy. Uh, There might be some surprises in there too. So I kind of like that angle as well. You know, we've gone a little bit over two hours for this episode. I'm looking through the rest. Uh, Lance Snyder, you got one here. Apologize. Going to send this one back in if there are any that you want me to uh, cover in the next episode. Matt, I apologize, not going to get to yours this time just because we'd definitely be into two and a half hours for this episode. A lot of stuff going on. So, yeah, I realize that there's no racing and we just put together a pretty long episode, but with all (laughs) the modifications going on in IndyCar right now and the question marks about what's coming, uh, this is kind of what happens on weeks like this. Uh, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is a Marshall Pruitt podcast. This is your Weekend IndyCar listener Q&A brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. Truly thank you for listening. If you've never checked it out, Marshall Pruitt podcast has almost 900 episodes so far. What is wrong with me? But we got lots there for you to listen to. I hope you check out some of that nonsense. Other than that... We're going to be having our guest episode on Wednesday with everyone's French fry, Sebastian Bourdais. Can't wait to do that with our man. Have some fun, have some laughs, and maybe even learn a little bit. I will look forward to speaking to you then.